You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, I would like to introduce you to Jeffrey Golia, the former clinical director at New York Center for Living, an outpatient clinic for young people and teens ages 13 through 30 dealing with substance use disorder and mental health issues. Jeffrey's work not only addresses the need of the young person, but also sees the impact on the wider family and significant people around them. In this first episode with Jeffrey, we will discuss not only the impact of the disease of addiction on young people and loved ones, but the various treatment options and methods that can be used to support those involved and prepare families to navigate the road ahead once their loved one is engaging in treatment and recovery. Welcome, Jeffrey Golia. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. I'm really honored that you have agreed to do this and I thank you for being here and really expect that my audience, no matter whether their loved ones are adult children or younger, I have the privilege of having Jeffrey Golia with me today, who I got the privilege of seeing on a webinar, Jeffrey, we were together and you were the presenter and I was really impressed by the way you describe the challenges that people who love someone with this disease experience. And so what I would really appreciate before we get into some of the things that I heard you say that I'd love my audience to hear is where you work, who your population is, who you serve, and we'll make sure all of this is on the information of the podcast so people can look you up and look up your wonderful services. Well, Margaret, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. As you mentioned, I'm Jeffrey Golia. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm the clinical director at the New York Center for Living. We are an outpatient clinic that provides substance use treatment for teens, young adults, aged 13 to 30. We operate at an IOP or intensive outpatient level of care, as well as an outpatient level of care. We provide a lot of different services, individual services, psychotherapy, group therapy, psychiatry, peer recovery coaching, parent coaching, family therapy. We understand that substance use disorder doesn't just impact the identified client, in our case, young people, but also their families. And so our program is really developed to address not only that young person in treatment, but their parents, siblings, any other significant others that we can support. And one thing I would say is that when young people make a change, when they start to embrace recovery, both in good ways and in challenging ways, it interrupts the patterns of the family. And so not only do we want to coach parents on expectations and on positive reinforcement and on setting boundaries, but we also want to help them to navigate the road when their kid starts to get better. And so that's an exciting part of the work that we do. And you're in Manhattan? We are. We are in Manhattan in New York City. We serve folks from all five boroughs from Westchester County. Some folks come to us from Long Island occasionally Connecticut and New Jersey. But there we are on East 52nd Street, Monday through Friday, 9 o'clock to 8 p.m., there to serve the young people of this area. 
And one of the things that I think appealed to having you on for me was, I'll be transparent, most of my clients who I work with on the family coaching side are older adults, mm-hmm. not the adolescent population. But I thought about it and it's like the audience that I experience struggle with parenting an adult with substance use disorder and other addictions in a similar way that they struggle when they're younger that infantizing that happens because of behavior. So I think some of the ways you approach it and talk about it could be useful for anyone of any age navigating change within the family system with recovery. Well, I appreciate you saying that. One thing that I would say is that, and the talk you heard was about how to talk to your kids about substance use. And what you, I think, realized early is that, in fact, that talk is about parenting. Yeah. And we're going to discuss here certainly has a relevance to adolescents, emerging adults, adult children, and how parents can parent them mm-hmm. and support them and hold boundaries and send messages of support to encourage and motivate them to engage in substance use recovery. But at the same time, I'd like to say that, you know, some of the advice I give or the guidance I give is really true through the lifespan. You know, my daughter's three years old and I find that the parenting I do with her, though, has relevance, I think, to ways in which other folks parent. And so, you know, I talk about authoritative parenting, and I know we're going to go over this more, but ways that we can find that sweet spot to demonstrate love, compassion, support for our children, but also at the same time, strong expectations, strong boundaries, and help to scaffold and guide them towards success in the future, whether they're struggling with substance use, mental health issues, or other issues or not. Mm-hmm. You've had also a career where you've worked with diverse populations. When you look at the work you do with people who are dual diagnosis, mental health issues, substance use disorders, what do you think the number one challenge for the surrounding family is? What do they tend to come to you and say, gosh, I just can't get this, or I'm not sure what to do with this? Very good question. Let me think. There's a couple that come to mind. I mean, one is managing the stigma right? We look around and we want our kids to be the best and the brightest and we want them to have as few issues as possible, not just for them because it makes their lives easier and less complicated, but also for us. How does it reflect on us as parents? How does it mean that we have to continue to engage in a lot of parenting, right? I think the fantasy is that at a certain point, they emerge into adulthood, that relationship shifts and there's not a lot of parenting that needs to happen anymore. Those relationships become more mutual, So I think the stigma and like the challenge of acknowledging like my kid has a problem and ergo my family has a problem Mm -hmm. that we need to address. Mm -hmm. And I think from there, understanding the magnitude of it, right? How deep is the problem? Mm -hmm. And that's where in our program, we engage in an initial assessment, which includes both a psychiatric evaluation and what's called a biopsychosocial assessment so that we can really understand the story of not just the client, but the family. Mm -hmm intergenerationally, in terms of what's coming up recently, and how development has happened. And so from there, it's about saying, this is a salient and significant issue that needs to be addressed at this level of care, or at a higher level of care. Mm -hmm. And from there, being able to then wield those recommendations in a way that's compassionate, that recognizes the challenge of hearing that. Sometimes parents have a hard time hearing, right? That situation is significant enough to require intensive intervention. Mm. The other thing I think is denial. I was trained in psychoanalytic and psychodynamic therapy. And while I've trained in other modalities, I sometimes go back to those old ego defenses. And denial is the most ancient one. Mm -hmm. We want to think it's not there. 
And as families get into patterns where they enable, ignore, minimize, deny the identified patient, the young person with the substance use issue, they utilize denial a lot, right? It's not happening. I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing, right? I'm not going to deal with that. And that's when the issues will proliferate. And so what we really want to focus on is we want to shine a light on the issues. We're only as sick as our secrets. And that includes families. And so, yeah, our initial engagement with parents is one, and I think that this goes across the board with any good program like ours or any coaching practice is compassion, curiosity, destigmatizing, normalizing to the extent that normalizing is going to help folks get in the door while also then recognizing sometimes the severity of the problem. And so that, I think, to answer your question, right, is these are some of the things that we we face and we deal with. And I would say, too, like learning how to reparent yeah. is then a lot of the work. And with the denial, you know, I see in my families a level of denial because you want to believe the best in your person, a level of denial because of the fear around, is this really that bad? The mm-hmm. recognition of their own journey and I grew out of it and it's not that bad. Do you mm-hmm. see that a lot in your families as well? Yeah, certainly. And it's something that I think I speak about when I do that parenting talk, because I think it's important for parents to look at their own behaviors, their own history. And that's relevant and important. But recognize that while the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, sometimes it's far enough that, yes, their issues with substances might be more severe than maybe yours was, right? Maybe you utilized alcohol and cannabis as a younger person, and somehow that came out in the wash, right? Or otherwise, maybe you are, in fact, using that. Right. But that young people can present with more serious substance use issues. And for us to try to look at that, not out of the context of the family system, but look at that to say, what's going on here that feels unique and different? That other piece of that is, I think, for parents who don't necessarily have issues with substance use disorder, but do drink alcohol, right, or maybe use cannabis recreationally in a way that is unproblematic for them is, right. you know, the kids will say, well, you do it, you know? And I think for a parent to be able to confidently say, for a number of different reasons, it's different because of your age, right? Developmentally, it is not good for you right now. I am setting a boundary to say that that is not something that you should do. You know, we should seek to delay all use until the mid twenties, right? All the evidence suggests that if you delay use until the age of 26, which is a tall order, <laughs> but the evidence suggests that if you do that, then any use after that shows it of a decreased risk of developing a substance use disorder. And then of course, there's the neuroscience, right? Around use of cannabis for young people, use of alcohol for young people, and the negative impact that it has on their brain, notwithstanding their behavior. Right. But for parents, I think it's about being able to kind of be confident, as it were, to say, these are my boundaries, these are the expectations as the parent. And listen, there's beautiful things going on in like the revolution around parenting in this country, around being thoughtful with our children, respecting their personhood. What we don't want to lose, I think, in that is that parents have a responsibility to set clear boundaries and expectations with their kids to utilize as best they can positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. We seek to use the same positive reinforcement and treatment. So anyway, just to kind of button this up, I think that parents doing that work to be sort of courageous and open in how they communicate and maintain those strong boundaries and those strong expectations. And again, with love. Right. Tell our kids that we love them all the time. But what follows from that isn't always, I'm going to let you do everything. But I love you and therefore no. And I think that that's, One of the things I hear in the change and evolution of resources approaches is 
the struggle with boundaries being cutting people off, which I totally disagree with, and I don't mm. think that is accurate, but that's some of the stigma around setting healthy boundaries and being a loving parent while having boundaries. My language is love the person, have boundaries against the behavior and the disease. Mm. And I'm guessing that would be similar to you. Do you find that families along that line come to you with so much fear that it almost paralyzes them to do this differently because they're just so afraid for the future of their child? Yeah, absolutely. You can feel it sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. How afraid they are. And the fear is in some ways doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. If I'm maybe uh, overstating, am I overstating it? Is this normal? Is it not? Because I don't want to overcorrect and I don't want to do something that's going to drive my child away, right? Mm -hmm. So that's certainly the fear or the fear that I'm afraid for my child. It's truly unmanageable right now and I don't know what to do, right? And then they're seeking help. I'm reminded of a, a quote from the book Game of Thrones when Ned Stark says, you know, the only time we can have courage is when we're afraid. Mm. You know, I don't necessarily always wield that quote. Not everyone reads those books or is as nerdy as me, but I do think that that is a moment where we can step up and we can start to build capacity mm. to say, okay, I'm afraid now. And my fear though needs to drive me to act with love and compassion towards my child in a way that's going to support, hopefully build some motivation. Mm towards critically examining their issues. I think the parents of young people have the capacity too to persuade in strong ways towards treatment. It's more difficult with adults. And that's where you get rhetoric and language around cutting people off or setting that boundary. Mm -hmm. For younger people, the incentive structure is different. Sure. And I think that you can utilize that initial fear and concern and say, okay, I'm going to seek support and get help. One of the things that our program does is we provide parent-only support. Mm. A young person is not willing to get treatment. We will support that person. That could be psychotherapy. That could even be psychiatry. But one piece that I really encourage my staff, especially my family therapist, is around parent coaching, yeah. right? Like what you do, right? Which is just how do we help that parent to eventually go back to their child and say, I am now equipped with the toolbox to manage my fear. And as it were, sublimated into a process by which I can support you in treatment. And I can, as it were, do what I need to do to get you there. Because that's a big conversation that we have. I love that. And I have absolutely experienced people who've started their own recovery before their child partners, anybody mm -hmm. has found their way in the rooms. And you see the impact that has on the trajectory for the person who is on the family side getting that help, whatever that is for them, but then the impact that can have for their loved one. I always say, you know, telling an addict to do something when they have the disease within them, they will find the opposite and convince you that's accurate. Whereas mm -hmm. if you role model out loud your recovery and ways you take care of yourself, they're seeing that. There's yeah. a part of them that knows that. And you're not getting in the muck with the disease as easily when you do those behaviors. But it's a learning that's a huge change. Mm. Do you find families reticent to get help for themselves? Or your population tends to be that the young person is identified as the patient in this case, but the families are eager to also get help and just education? I mean, fix my kid, right? You hear that all the time. Fix my kid. I mean, you don't necessarily always literally hear that, but that's the message you're getting, right? Is they need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And so what are you doing about it, right? What are you doing for your own recovery? When we use that rhetoric is so important, right, around recovery. We're all in recovery for something and, and from something. I would say that, you know, utilizing early and often the language of parent and family recovery is, I think, key in kind of laying that groundwork for what that is going to look like. Mm -hmm. 
And so, listen, we early and often set the expectation that our program involves parent-only groups, multifamily groups, family therapy, family coaching as necessary. That is an essential part of the work that we do. And my sense is, you know, and everywhere I've worked that sort of worked on this issue has recognized and sought to provide interventions to the family and to the parents because it is absolutely necessary. One of my family therapists, you know, he's a trained MFT and he does a lot with family systems, right? And that sort of approach. And the idea is that families see homeostasis all the time, right? And so when you say to them, there's a significant issue with your child, whether they are in treatment or you're seeking to get them in treatment, you also need to do the work because any interruption with them is going to be an interruption in the whole system. And so you need to find a way to roll with that. And for the people who can't see me, I'm doing a silly move with my arms, like a wave, because that's what we have to do. We have to ride that wave and give people the capacity to balance in that context. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Hello, hello. I hope you've already heard about the Nashville retreat that I am so thrilled to be putting on with Dee Dee Armstrong. In the first weekend in March, we will be in Nashville, Tennessee. What a cool city. What a fun location. We're going to be in Welcome to 1979, which is a recording studio. And we will be hosting 30 wonderful people to be a part of a retreat that takes every one of us deeper on our recovery journey. So if you haven't checked it out, please go to my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com and look at the description and information about this retreat. Hey, there's nothing like a trip to Nashville to kick off this 2024 year with some kindness for yourself, some self-care and some connection with other people in recovery. You won't regret it. So come and join us in Nashville. We are so excited. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So this may be too minute of an issue, but I hear it a lot. So I'm going to throw it out because I'm guessing there's listeners who feel it and are experiencing it. You get to that point when your child turns 18. They're still struggling. They Mm -hmm. may not have engaged in recovery yet. And as you said, when they're in the home and they're minors, there's more leverage, ability to help them find services, make them happen. How do you support people in that transition phase? Because you treat adolescents, young adults. Mm -hmm. So that's a really complicated stage on many levels for the family surrounding them because I suddenly have no authority or limited ability using old school language, to influence them in a way that I might have prior to them being an adult, according to law. To some extent, that's true, right? It's a different form of leverage when they're younger. For instance, right, if, and you know, it's it's strange to kind of jump to this extreme example, right? But when, you know, you say you can't live here if you are doing that, right? You You can't do that with folks under 18. I'm sure every jurisdiction has sort of different laws about that. But when you're 18, that is sort of a nuclear option, right, that one could utilize. And listen, that decision is extremely difficult and involves a lot of, I think, work to get there and to think about how to utilize that in a therapeutic way. And people differ about what they think about that. But Mm -hmm. I would say this, 18-year-olds and up, 18 to mid-20s, even to 30s, right? And and I'll be honest, so my experience is mostly with folks under 30, so I'm going to kind of stay in my lane with respect to that, is that 
those young people, those emerging adults are still exceptionally dependent on their parents. Mm-hmm. And there are thoughtful ways that parents can utilize leverage in order to support treatment at that time. And so I think it just opens up different options with respect to doing that. But I would say that like, so if we recognize that maybe the parenting hasn't been consistent and authoritative, Irvin Yalom says, you know, if you can't strike while the iron is hot, strike while the iron is cold. You got to do what you can do, right? Right, right. We can focus on developing a plan by which parents can thoughtfully utilize um, leverage and set clear expectations and boundaries to help to enhance motivation towards sobriety, right? Because the other piece around this is that you can send the transport team to send a young person to treatment and they go to treatment and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't in large part because they have kind of looked around and said, you know what, my life is unmanageable even as at a young age and I want to make a change, right? So they've already moved to a different stage of change from right. pre-contemplation to contemplation, maybe the planning, maybe the action, maybe they're in a little bit of a few of them. But motivation enhancement, right, is going to be the key here, right, is going to be about really being able to the best of your ability, if there's not acute safety concerns, to say to a young person, I'm setting a clear expectation about what I want. My message of support is that you seek treatment and that you seek recovery. These are the ways in which I will support you in that. And these are the ways that I can't support you if you don't do that. And then being consistent with those and coaching programs like ours we can help to not only treat that young person and treat the family and provide the coaching, but also sometimes it's as simple as like writing it out like a Mm -hmm. contract. And it's funny because, you know, working with young people, different stripes in different areas, right? They're always surprised at how much work adulthood is. And I'm like, you need to plan everything. You need to put everything in your calendar. You need to write things down. Like you can't just go willy nilly on these things. And so sometimes with parents, it's about like, this is the script. This is what we're going to say. This is what we're going to repeat because the consistency and repetition is so important when it comes to, being able to set those expectations, set those boundaries, and then see it through. Mm. And so I hear your point that the the leverage changes and it's inciting and influencing or attempting to their level of motivation because ultimately love and compassion leads this, right? But that can get so messy because the love and then the fear get tangled up and it's like, oh, what if it goes horribly mm-hmm. wrong? What if it mm-hmm. gets worse? What if, right? The what ifs. Mm-hmm. So the piece that I hear is vital to the work you do, and I agree in mine, is helping the families, the loved ones, get some stability and a plan for themselves, some language, some understanding, and understand the nature of the illness with which they're dealing with. Because a lot mm-hmm. of people have an expectation of, based on that stigma of what it looks like that may look very different than what's going on in one's home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So helping them understand those things is part of the journey that I hear you offer. Psychoeducation is kind of like the technical word for it. And it sounds like, oh, like I'm learning about like psychological issues and mental illness. But psychoeducation is about understanding a wide swath of important information, the impact the substances have on the brain, the impact the substances have on the family system you know, what different recovery-oriented systems of support exist out there? What kinds of treatments exist out there that can be helpful for this? What medications for addiction treatment can be utilized in the service of this? Mm -hmm. Knowledge is power in these situations. And I think that what we see with parents coming in is they don't know, right? I look at like the search, you know, I get the back end, like what people search that leads us to our website, right? And like the things they might have heard IOP somewhere, right? So they're searching substance use IOP, you know, they're searching for T 
teen program, right? Like all these are things like this speaks to people kind of Googling and saying, I don't know where to start here, right? And so when they call us, the first thing is, how are you doing, right? If you're calling, it's because things aren't going great. Mm -hmm. So let's just start there. How are you doing? And then from there, we can start to provide information education about our program, about other levels of care. And then in the program, we can provide psychoeducation on substances interacting with the brain, addiction, overdoses, all of that important information for families so they can be equipped and know about this issue. Because again, the fear mm-hmm. that you mentioned before is tied so much to our lack of knowledge. For sure. It's tied so much to the unknown and also of the stigma of substance use, right? Where are they getting it? What are they using? And by the way, I mean, that there's some real concerns about that, right? The proliferation of fentanyl is a deadly and dangerous issue right? It's great that we have things like Vivitrol and buprenorphine, and it's great that we have Narcan. But, you know, we do want to provide, you know, we don't want to scare, but we do want to provide fact-based information that helps people to, yeah, just feel like a little bit more knowledgeable and then also give them the support so they can build that courage to move forward. Sure. Yeah. You cover a lot there, right there. I mean, you know, I think about the the average person searching. I think that's a fascinating thing because I know when I worked in a treatment center for a long time, I would often find families would come in and say, what language are you speaking? You all have these terms and these acronyms and these mm-hmm. things. And I don't know what you so part of the psychoeducation is huge from the get go. And also the inability for some people, and I would say myself included in my journey when I love someone with this disease, to speak it out loud to maybe find someone who knows how to steer me in the right direction. That silent search, that keeping it down low while trying to figure it all out can really be challenging. Like you say, when they're searching IOP, because I've heard that term, but they don't really know what it means. So it's it's an interesting challenge for families. We really have to work, don't we, Jeffrey, on destigmatizing mental illness, substance use disorder, and all aspects of our life that seem to have this dirty feel to them, which it isn't. It's just like if we had another illness. Yeah. My medical director, Dr. Eric Collins, who is a great mentor for me, he talks a lot about the language we use, right? We try to stay away from words like clean. And we can say that person tested negative, right? Or I'm clean and sober. Well, you're sober and that's awesome, right? But clean, right, has this kind of judgment to it, right? So a lot of it is one, yes, getting rid of the jargon when we're speaking with parents, right? Obviously, we use jargon, I think, internally because it's expedient. But I think for parents, we want to use commonplace common sense language i shy away from substance abuse focus on substance use right or maybe misuse right being thoughtful about those sorts of things i have a something too where i prefer not to use the term marijuana but cannabis right because there is a bit of a racist origin to Mm -hmm. the use of that term although you know i don't sort of hold it against other folks necessarily but i do like to provide that education but beyond that when we're talking about increasing awareness and information for parents folks like you and maybe to some extent folks like me, but the parent coaches, the people who are kind of on the front lines who are meeting people in the moment of crisis, in the moment where they pick up the phone, you are the translators and the navigators for them of this world of treatment, which has programs that are great and programs that aren't great and that levels of care that make sense for this person and levels of care that don't make sense for this person. Right. And I do think that like that is so key, our capacity to build rapport and relationship And from then to guide in a way that's thoughtful, sometimes directed, but oftentimes not. If I encounter a family and I say, listen, we're not the right level of care. You need a higher level of care. What do I do? And I say, well, here are the options. Right. I can't tell you 
how to get your kid from point A to point B. I can offer the options. And to some extent, if there's a program you're looking at, I would take their advice with respect to that. But what I can do is I can help you to some extent pros and cons this out, right? What's going to be the benefit of this approach versus this approach? And a lot of that's contingent on the individual factors of that family, the dangerousness of the substances being used, the potential lethality, issues around personal safety, issues around safety of the family. There's so many different you know, issues and all we can do is try to partialize, which is to say, create a nice, like understandable list of what's happening there and then do the pros and cons to determine what's the best way that we're gonna get this young person the help that they need. And then add on the help for the family, which you do and many facilities do, which I'm very glad for. Come back next week where Jeffrey and I continue the conversation and we discuss parenting styles, cohesive, consistent decision-making, and how these play a role in the family dealing with a loved one battling the disease of addiction. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson, Until next time, please take care of you.